You know, I think about that song that we just sang, and as we're singing it, that C word comes up, right? We've been talking about the C word, this control, right? Because we are always seeking control of our lives. We're seeking control even our relationship with God. We seek control. So what we started two weeks ago, we started this series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what this series is about is about relationship. This series is about our giving up control in reality. It's about us not deciding what our lives are going to be about spiritually, but letting God decide that. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we, we did two weeks of introduction, and the first week we talked about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. You know, not just truth, the truth being the word of God, but in spirit as well, because it is through his spirit that we have relationship. It's interactive. It's continuing. It's not just when we go to him in the word, but it's the word that comes alive in our lives, right? So we talked about that relationship being more than just controlling our relationship through intellect, through what we learn in the word of God, okay? Both are necessary. And so then last week we continued the introduction talking about giving up control of what we're afraid of, things that maybe are out of our boundaries, out of the things that we're normally comfortable with. You know, if you've been part of the, the college group for any length of time, you know that I use the words out of your comfort zone, right? Because that's where the Lord wants us is out of our comfort zone. Why? Because then he can work. Because there's a battle of control. There's a battle of control in each one of our lives. We control, and when we do that, there's a battle because why he wants control. If we say, Lord, I want to grow in you, and, and like what that song said, I want, I want to be sold out for you. Set a fire deep down in my soul. Make it burn out of control to where I cannot control it. When you pray for that, be careful because God's going to want to do that in your life. Sometimes we really don't want what we pray for. Or maybe we don't think about what's going on when we pray for it. So when you pray, God, work in my life. Be real in my life. Reveal yourself to me. What you're really saying is, God, I relinquish control in my life. That's my desire anyway. I desire to relinquish this control. Why? So you can take control. We think that we're letting him have control. But oftentimes we don't. And see, as I shared with you in my testimony, you know, I've been saved for 42 years, or almost 42 years. And for 40 of those years, or about right around there, a little shy of 40 of those years, I did not believe or understand the spirit side of that relationship. See, I thought the Holy Spirit simply worked through the Word of God. 
Everything that I needed to know, I knew was in the Word of God. And by the way, I believe that today. That isn't changed. Everything that I need for my life is in the Word of God. What I didn't understand was the very interaction that the Holy Spirit wanted to have in a relationship with me. So as I've shared with you, certainly with the church since we planted the church, but also with young people for the last two and a half years, I've been very transparent about this walk that I'm on. Understanding that this relationship is an interactive one. This relationship is one where I don't just hear, or that God doesn't want me just to hear through the Word of God. He wants to interact with me personally. He wants me to have a relationship with Him personally. Okay, this interactive thing. And, and so, as I told you, being transparent, I began studying this and trying to figure out exactly what that meant. Because I had friends of mine that when they said they heard from the Holy Spirit, it was way different than when I said I heard from the Holy Spirit. Okay? When I heard from the Holy Spirit, it was something that I read in the Word of God. It was something that I read that touched my heart that maybe applied to my life. And I knew that he was speaking to me through his word. Was that not really? Absolutely, that was real. Because, see, I grew as a Christian for those 40 years. I served. I taught the word of God. I studied the word of God. I, for 15 years, was, was a worship leader, growing in the word of God. But, see, that's how I always thought was the only way that he would speak to me. Until these three people in my life started opening my eyes to something different. Why? Because I knew their walk. I trusted them because I knew where they were with the Lord. So I began to pray, Lord, if I'm missing something, I want you to open my eyes. And what he began opening my eyes to was this concept of control. See, if I want to keep control... I can't have him reign in my life. I can have him in my life, but I can manipulate that through my intellect. I can manipulate that through what I learn in his word and apply whatever I want. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay, so, so I, I went down this road. And I don't want to do a whole other introduction here. If you want to get more on that, and more on my personal testimony you can pull up online last week and the week before. So I came to the place where I said, Lord, I need you to prove in, in Scripture to me that the gifts were, were for today. This interactive part that you take in a Christian's life, that that is for today. See, because I didn't believe it was. I was what you call a cessationist. One who believes that the gifts of the Holy Spirit ended when the apostles died. They were necessary for the apostles because it was the beginning of the church. See, that's what I believed. That's what I believed. That's, that's what I believed for 40 years of my salvation. But then he began to show me in the word of God how that was incorrect. I had missed the very relational thing that he wanted me to get. So where we're at today, we've been studying this, like I said, for a couple of weeks. And where we're at today is the part that I'm going to refer to as the debate. 
And this is really the nuts and bolts of what God showed me over the course of about six months. Remember the two things I prayed when, when I knew, by this time, I knew that there was something more. And so I prayed two things. I said, Lord, first of all, I pray you show me beyond a shadow of a doubt in your word that this is, this is right and this is what you want. I said, but secondly, please show me in a way that I could teach others. Because there's a lot of people who don't have this relationship with the Holy Spirit, who don't pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And then I knew many who that's all they did. So they went on the other end of the scale. So I said, Lord, don't just show me how it's right in your word, but show me how to tell others. So that's what we're going to begin with today. And I want to, I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, please understand, there are theologians on both sides of this that are godly, godly men and women. Okay? This is not something that, that, well, if you're on one side, you're not living for the Lord. Wow, if I had to believe that, then I would believe that 40 years of my saved life were, were wasted. And, and I know that wasn't true. I know there was fruit in my life for those 40 years. I know the last 15 years of leading worship, there was fruit in my life there. And the last two and a half, three years leading the college age. So there is fruit on both sides. However, I needed to know what was God's best. Okay, so understand, there are, there are quality theologians on both sides of this, this issue. And, and how we apply it. And I'm going to say how we apply it is a little bit more of a gray area. And that's what we need to find out for our church and what we need to find out personally. That was important to me. Because as I got into the Word of God, the truth of it really wasn't a gray area. And, and here I went from, I did a 180 degree turn believing that the Word of God was so clear that it was not for today. And then after this study, realizing how wrong I was had nothing to do with the gray area that, well, now I just switch sides and believe this instead of believing that. The Word of God is pretty clear in this area. So that's what we're going to be getting into today. One last thing I want to say in regards to this is when there are disagreements within the body of Christ in this area, and, and there are huge splits over this, there are huge divides in the entire body of Christ. I'm not talking about this church. But in the entire body of Christ, there are huge divides in this. There should be no reason why there's division over this. There should be no reason and no disagreements in terms of fellowship, in terms of working together, in terms of these things. So I want to point that out because that's important. Because there are people that you're going to work with in the future that may not believe the same way you do in this area. There may even be people within this church that do not believe the same way that I do, or that how I'm teaching. And that's okay. That's okay. We still work together. We could still see God's will happen together. That's important to point out because a lot of people don't feel that. But as we get into this time period that we're getting into, this, 
The, the days are going to get tougher, especially for the church. If you don't believe that, turn on the news. Open your eyes, turn on the news, and see what's going on. It's going to continue to get worse. So we, as the body of Christ, have to come together. We have to decide that the things that, that we may have differences in, they're not the things that keep us from reaching the world. Right? So let's get into this. I want to point out, too, at the beginning of this, that there is a burden of proof involved here. Okay? When you have a belief in something, there is a burden of proof on that. That's something I never got before. And that burden of proof is, is really on the cessationist view. And that's how I began to approach this. When I first prayed, God, I want you to, to reveal to me in Scripture whether this is right or wrong, I went into it with the thought process of how I believed. I believed that the gifts of the Spirit, specifically the manifestational gifts of the Spirit that you find in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans and Ephesians, these, these gifts of the Spirit were not for today. So as a cessationist, I went into this study believing that and having the burden of proof on me to say, this is not for today. And the burden of proof was on me as a cessationist. Why? Because the Bible was chock full of it. If I studied Christ's life, Christ's life was chock full of the gifts of the Spirit, chock full of signs and wonders, chock full of healings, chock full of casting out demons. So the fact that the Bible was chock full of that, I had to come in, the burden of proof was on me to say that is no longer for today. And that's where I began the study. So I want you to understand that, that our burden to prove this is to prove something different than what we dis see displayed in Christ's life. Okay? So in, in looking at all of this, and I didn't just take my own, you know, 40 years of training in this and what I believed. I also began to study further what other people believed, other cessationists believed. And specifically John MacArthur. John MacArthur is one who is probably at the forefront of cessationism. Certainly if you Google it, he will pop up in just about everything. And, and that was because of a book he wrote against it called Strange Fire. Okay, and you, you'll find that on there. So, so I dove into his book. I dove into what he believed. I dove into what other cessationists believed. And then I added that to my own beliefs. And I came up with basically nine reasons that I could find, and perhaps there are more, but I couldn't find any more. I came up with nine reasons why a cessationist believes what they believe, that the gifts are not for today. Now, by the way, only two of those are actually out of the Word of God. I could only find two things in the Word of God, two specific verses, that they use to say those are not for today. The other seven were inferences. The other seven were... were um, you know, what they think was going on and why they believe this happened. So, so the other seven were really more logical arguments and not biblical arguments. So what I want to do first of all 
is the most important thing, and we're probably not going to get through all these today. Perhaps if, if we'll see. If not today, we'll we'll finish them up next week. But I want to go through the first two biblical arguments first, because to me those are the most important. Those are the ones where <clears throat> the Bible can be a yay or an a, right? So that's what we want to deal with first. So I want you to turn to. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, in, in listing these beliefs, I'm going to read these as was written basically through the Strange Fire book, through John MacArthur's teaching. These are not my words, although remember, these were my beliefs. This was where I was at two years ago. Number one... <clears throat> They, meaning cessationists, okay, and by, by the way, I'll, I'll try to not use, the, the two words <laughs> is cessationism, which meaning the gifts are not for today, that they ended with the, the death of the apostles, versus continuationism. Okay, that's an b- even bigger word, okay, if you, if you Google those, those are the two opposing views that you're going to see on there. I'm not going to try and use those words, I just want you to understand when I'm saying the different belief systems here. So as I'm listing what they believe, when I say they, I am talking about the cessationists, those who believe the, the gifts are not for today. Number one, they believe that the gifts ended with the completion of the canon of Scripture. Okay? Now, for this, they use their first biblical reference, and they use 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. Okay, it says when the perfect comes, you know, all these all these things now we prophesy in part. And we'll read it here in a second, but I want you to turn there. First Corinthians chapter 13. Okay, but they say when the perfect comes, then we will have no longer any need for the partial. That's basically their argument. Okay, and what they're saying the perfect is was the canonization of scripture. Okay, when when all of the scripture, for those of you who don't understand what canonization means, we have our Bible today is 66 books written by 40 plus authors. Okay, that came together and that was called the canonization. Okay, the canonization of scripture. And I'm, I'm not going to rabbit trail on to that. You can Google that if you want to. But the canonization of scripture was the coming together of what we know of today as the Bible. Okay, in, in Christ's time, they had the Old Testament. They did not have the New Testament. So, so shortly after that, the canonization gave us what we know of today as the entire Bible. So that's what they're calling the perfect, the quote-unquote perfect. Okay, so let's read. I want to read through chapter 13, and let's get a feel for what this is. One thing you want to do, and I, I would encourage you all the time, when, when a preacher, whether I do it, anybody else does it, if a preacher takes a single verse and they, they decide a doctrine out of a single verse or they preach something out of a single verse, that's not a bad thing. I don't mean that's bad. But go back and read the whole passage because you may get a very different understanding than what's being preached. That's something very, very important. I learned that's something I'm not supposed to do. I'm not supposed to pick out a verse, 
you know, and, and just preach on that verse without understanding the whole of Scripture. Okay? That's what we're going to do right now, going back to this verse and understanding, trying to understand how they see it. So, what's going on here back in chapter 12 was Paul was talking about these gifts. These gifts of the Holy Spirit. These manifestational gifts. And he lists those. If, if, you're, if you're wanting to go back, we won't take it, do it now. But verse 28, talk about different gifts of the Spirit in, in chapter 12. So then he lists all these gifts and, and, and gives some information about those. But then he comes to chapter 13, okay? Chapter 13 is nestled right in the middle of, again, the gifts in chapter 14, where he talks about the gifts and how we're to use them, okay? So right in the middle is nestled this single chapter, and it's got a single focus. And the focus isn't the gifts, okay? But it's interesting what we'll learn from it. Let's, let's read, starting in, in verse 1, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, remember he just talked about that in chapter 12. Talked about these powers given through the miraculous gifts. Okay, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith, those were all separate gifts, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then verse 8 begins to set up this part that they talk about, the perfect. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, what he said in chapter 12, they'll end, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was like a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. So let's go back real quick when it talks about, but when the perfect comes. Okay, he just listed that we, we prophesy him, and, and, you know, in chapter 12, and he said, all this is going to pass away in verse 8 and 9. Then in, chapter, in verse 10, he says, but when the perfect comes. So let, let's place in there 
the entire Bible, the canonicity of the Bible. Okay? But when the entire Bible comes, verse 10, the partial will pass away. When I was like a child, I spoke like a child, and so on. How does that strike you when you read that? See, the first time I read that and I placed what they believed in it, because at the time, it was what I believed. It didn't fit anymore. See, it didn't make sense. Why? Because the partial is what they had. They had the Old Testament. They had the law. They had the prophets. Right? They had that. So did that mean when the rest came, that passed away? No, see, that that was the first part that didn't make sense to me. There was no part of the Word of God that passed away. So if, if it's talking about the perfect being the canon of the Bible, it said when that perfect came, the old passed away. We didn't see the Bible pass away, but let's go further with that. Again, let's say that this perfect is the Word of God. Okay? Some of the other things that don't fit as well. Verse 12, For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face to face with what? Face to face with the entire Bible? See, there is something personal going on here. And I would submit to you that it's talking about a person. So let's look at that word perfect. The word perfect in the Greek is a little different than what they would claim. The word perfect is the Greek word teleos. It means complete. Okay? So that part makes sense, right? The Bible now is complete. It's the complete word of God. It is everything that the Lord has said to us on this earth. It's complete. That's what, that's what the word complete means. But there's a couple problems with that as well. There's a couple problems believing that the word of God is complete. Why? Because it said that it's not. See, the Bible teaches that the Bible is not complete. That sounds like a drastic statement, but let's look at it. All right? Let's turn to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, verse 4. What's going on here is this is, this is during the tribulation period, and, and you know the Lamb of God is opening the seals of judgment, right? And then there's a seal that's, that's uh, as, whoops, as he's opening these up, these seven thunders rumble. Okay, now remember, John is there, and John's writing down this entire experience. That's what the book of Revelation is, is, is John's, what he's seeing happening. A vision of the future, right? So he's writing all of this down. Verse 4 of chapter 10 says this, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. Okay, let's stop there a second. That means that there was something said in those thunders. That isn't like how we know thunder today. Okay, first of all, you have to understand everything in heaven is alive. Everything has meaning. Everything has place. So when these seven thunders rumbled, 
John knew what they were saying. How do we know that? Because he's about to write it down. He's not writing down the fact that I heard a big roar. Okay, because he actually did write that down. The seven thunders spoke and he heard information. He heard them say something. So again, let's start at verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. And do not write it down. Now we find out later that that's held for a later judgment. That that will be revealed later. But it wasn't revealed in the word of God that we see. We did not see the completed word of God. We know at least that God spoke through these seven thunders. John heard it and didn't write it down. So there's something that we do not get to know, right? There's another example of that. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And what's going on here, this is, this is where Paul has a vision and, and he, he's praying about this thorn in the side that he can't seem to get rid of. But Paul actually is taken up to the third heaven. The third heaven is the throne room. That is where Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father. You know, it's not the heavens like what we think of as, as the space here, the sky, where the air, where the you know birds fly and that sort of thing. This is the third heaven where God the Father is. And I'm going to uh, start with verses 2, read through 4. And this is what Paul said about this experience. I know a man, he's talking about himself, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things, what? That cannot be told. See, Paul heard things and saw things that he couldn't write down. God wanted him to experience these things, but he was not allowed to write them down. Now, it wasn't that Paul wasn't allowed to write any scripture, because Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. Paul wrote more books than any other author in the Bible. So why couldn't he write down this experience? We don't know. But we know he was privy to things, he was told things, and he saw things that he couldn't write down. So again, another example of something that happened that was given to man, but not given through Scripture. Not given to all men. So there are two examples right there that say God did not reveal to us everything that he wants to reveal. But you know what? Sit back a second and let's think that logically through. Has God said everything to us that he wants to say? I mean, that's a little crazy when you think about that. There's no way that he could work in our life if everything was in the word of God. There was no personalization to that whatsoever. So that was the first thing that they said 
regarding the cessation, or the cessation of the gifts, the ceasing of the gifts, that that perfect was the canonization of the scripture. Now, I, I, I want to tell you what I believe that is. And we're going to talk about this more later. But the perfect is Jesus Christ. You know, if you ever have confusion about what something is talking about in the Word of God, it doesn't matter where it is, put Jesus Christ right in the middle of it and see how it comes out. Okay, let's read, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Just real quick, go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, Paul's talking about love here as he begins. By the way, who is love? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ inhabits the very nature of love. He is the nature of love. So, again, let's start with uh, verse 8. But when it reads the word perfect, think of Jesus Christ instead. And let's see how that fits. Let's see if that fits a little better. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when Jesus Christ comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish, childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, meaning we see Jesus Christ dimly, because we see him through our own filters. Right? But then, when Christ comes, but then face to face. See, one, one day we will stand before our Lord. We will stand before him and see him in reality face to face. It won't be through our preconceptions. It won't be through our inabilities and limitations as human beings. One day we'll see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know fully. See, we don't know fully now that the Bible has been completed. There's no way you can know and apply everything in the Word of God. And even if you can, not everyone would apply it. See, that's not the inference of this, this text here. This text is talking about everybody who is a believer. That they will know in part now, but then when they see him face to face, they will know everything fully. Everything that was talked about before, this applied love, this very nature of love, the very nature of who Christ is, we're going to know fully because we see him face to face. So let that sit for a second. See how that fits in there better than the canonization of Scripture. That was the first Scripture they used to prove this cessationism. And I think, at least to me, it doesn't even fit. And as I studied this after being a cessationist for 40 years, it hit me like a ton of bricks. How did I miss that? And I can't even answer that question. I don't know how I missed it. 
Maybe because I wasn't looking for it. So the second thing they use comes out of Revelation. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 22. And this is the second biblical argument that they use. By the way, you know what, I, I put a note here and I forgot to say it, but, but for, for the sake of the tape, anybody coming back, or for the sake of your notes, I want you to write down one other scripture on that last point, and that's John 21, verse 25. John 21, verse 25. It says this, John said this at the end of his book, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So there were so many things that we did not get to read in the Word of God, but yet that he wants to ex- us to experience through his Holy Spirit. Okay, so Revelation 22, and this other thought comes from verses 18 to 19. And this is what, what was said, in, again, on, on his website. We are cursed, this is the cessationist view, we are cursed if we add to or delete from the scriptures in any way. God's revelation to man is complete. The canon of scripture is complete. God does not add to any of his completed scripture through prophecy. Okay, that's, that's what a cessationist believes. Okay, this warning is very specific what we're about to read. I want you to read, read with me in Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19. Say this. I warn everyone, this is John writing at the end of the book here. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So basically what they're saying here, uh, the cessationist is, is applying what is said in Revelation to the entire Bible, to the entire 66 books that we know of today. Okay, there's a couple of problems here. First of all, this is pretty specific. Okay, remember, we know them as separate books, right? When we think of the Bible, we think of, yes, a book, but we think of 66 books. 66 separate books compiled together that we know of as the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so what's it say here, though? I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy. He's talking about Revelation. This is the only book, if you look, the book of Revelation is the only book that gives a curse if you don't abide, or if you don't abide by the conditions of the curse. In this case, if you add to or take away from the prophecies of this book, being Revelation, then God will pour those out on your very life. However, this book also is the only book that gives a promise. If you look at the beginning of Revelation, it gives a promise to those who read it. 
that there is a special blessing to those who read this book. So Revelation is special. It was set aside as special because it's the only one in the Word of God, the only book in the Word of God that gives a promise and a curse. So again, if you're trying to apply this to the entire Word, you have a few problems. Because one, it's talking about the specific prophecies of Revelation. That's what the curse amounts to. And it also could not have been talking about the entire Bible because when this was written, it would have to be prophetically thinking forward. Why? Because it hadn't been compiled yet. The canon hadn't even been started at this point. So it couldn't mean the entire Bible. Now that, to me, when I read that back, I thought, okay, well, that, that seems pretty straightforward. You know, this is, this is not being applied correctly. Now, if you look on the different websites, if you read the books, you'll understand that the weight of their arguments is not in Scripture. Those are the only two I could find that they use a biblical reference point to say this is what it's saying. Why? Because we had to. When I was a cessationist, if I believed that they were not today, I had to have a biblical reference point of that being the case, otherwise how could I believe it? Those were the only two biblical reference points that, we could, that I could find. The rest of these are simply logical arguments. So let's get into the first one. This first logical argument was the unique role of miracles. And I'm going to read it as they had it, okay, on, on MacArthur's, out of MacArthur's information. I'm going to read it as they had it, and then let's talk about it for a bit. The unique role of miracles. There were three primary periods in the Word of God where miracles were performed through unique men. This is the cessationist view. The first was Moses, the second during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and the third was with Jesus and his apostles. The primary purpose of miracles has always been to establish the credibility of one who speaks the word of God. Not just any teacher, but those who have been given the word directly. In Exodus, Moses was given is given power to perform miracles to, to, to prove to Pharaoh and the world that God is speaking through him. The miracles validated Moses' claim to be speaking for God. Only those who spoke authoritatively and infallibly for God were given the power of miracles. This same pattern is found in the New Testament. Miracles are what validated Christ's ministry as one who spoke for God. In fact, it was a miracle turning the water into wine that began his earthly ministry. You can look that up in John 5. Jesus' miracles were not primarily a tool for effective evangelism or about alleviating human suffering. The main reason the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to perform miracles was to confirm that he was everything he claimed to be and that he spoke the word of God. The same power was given to the original apostles as it served the same purpose in establishing the church. That sounds on the surface, okay, 
Yeah, it, it, I, I could see that. However, there's a glaring problem when you really start to look at it. It says there were three separate times of heavy miracles. I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to begin in Genesis and go until Revelation. And you find a book that doesn't have a miracle. In fact, you find a book that doesn't have dozens upon dozens of miracles. Because, see, there, it blew me away when I first read that, and I thought, what about creation? That was a miracle. Okay, well, maybe I'll give them that because that was like the beginning of everything. That was the beginning of the world and everything else. Okay, okay, now, God, that's fine. Now man is created and, and you know, we'll just go on from there. So, so certainly there are no other, no other miracles in the book of Genesis, right? Okay, because, because there, there are no miracles until we really get to Moses, is what they said. However, what about Abraham? You know, what about Isaac? What, what about all these other miracles that happen in just about every chapter of the Word of God? You know, what, what about Joshua? What about going into the, to, to the promised land? I mean, I'm pretty sure there were miracles happening when the walls fell down at Jericho. You know, I'm pretty sure that David, as David was a young man, I don't know any other guy who could kill a lion and a bear with his bare hands. That to me is a miracle. Now, you might be able to quantify your miracles as something a lot bigger than that. And, okay, that's awesome because to me, that's not normal stuff. You know, it's, it's not normal when, when David goes from being an outcast to being the, one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. You know? Why? Because God performed miracles in his life. There were miracles happening every day. What about Samuel? What about Samuel when, when you know, God even called him? I think it's a miracle when the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. Samuel. He gets up. Was that you? No, it wasn't you. Go back to bed. Finally realizes it's God. See, that's a miracle. It's a miracle that happened all throughout the Old Testament. You can't find a book that does not have miracles in it. So the idea that the miracles only happened in three specific areas didn't make sense. Now, the New Testament, they said, well, that was Christ, and that was the apostles for the beginning of the church. Okay, I'm fine with that. However, what about all the miracles since? What about the miracles that we hear of? What about the miracles that we've heard of in history? You know, I don't know about you, but I think if we went around the room and we said, you know, could you, can you mention a miracle that you've seen in your own life? You know, I can mention one. I hope I don't embarrass her. But my wife had something that was precancerous in her. Okay, these cells, these atypia cells that don't go away. And it was told that she had to have an operation to get rid of those. Because they would definitely, not that they might, but they would definitely lead to cancer, and if not taken care of, lead to 
death. Okay, well, she felt that there, there was a better way. She didn't feel the Lord wanted her to have this operation. And so she said, well, how about if, if, you know, I start doing things holistically? And the doctor basically looked at, I was there with her, kind of looked and smirked and said, you're going to die. If you pursue that direction, it's not going to do anything for you. Well, she did. She pursued that direction, and, and she was able to keep it at bay, and she, she was having checkups every, what, four or five months or whatever it was. Well, there came a point, and, and I remember two specific times that we prayed for her. We had a prayer group where we laid hands and prayed on her. And then I remember a few weeks later, Lord waking me up about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning and just saying, lay your hands on her and pray for her. And so I did. I'd never done it before. I didn't even know what that meant. But I did it. I didn't want to wake her up because I would have felt stupid. <laughs> so I just went to sleep. I, I don't even think I told you about it. Uh, maybe I did, but I, I, I can't remember even telling her about it because I thought, this feels really ridiculous to me, but Lord, you told me to do it, so I'll do it. Okay, well, a few weeks later, she had a checkup. And the doctor wouldn't even talk to her. He wouldn't even talk to her. She, she spoke with, with a nurse who said, you're clear. Not that they haven't gotten any worse, which had been the case for the previous two or three appointments, but that they were gone. See, atypia cells don't leave. From what we were told, they stay until they become cancer. At best, you can hold them at bay. But they don't leave. They never leave the body. That's why they wanted to cut it out. But they were gone. Completely healed completely gone. I don't know about you, but to me, that's a miracle. See, that doesn't fit into the nice, neat little package of Jesus and the apostles, right? That one hit me home. I saw it before my own eyes. If you open your eyes to your own life, you invite in the Holy Spirit, you're going to see it for yourself. See, miracles are alive today. Why? Because they don't just show that the person being performed through them is coming from God. That's not the purpose of a miracle. It wasn't even, you can look in the, in the scriptures and see what Jesus Christ said about it. It wasn't even that it proved that Jesus Christ was Lord. It proved his father was God. And their relationship was symbiotic. A miracle goes to lift the name of God the Father. See, that's what a miracle does. So it doesn't make sense to me that God chose three time periods. Well, I'll, I'll glorify my name here, here, and here. And no other time. See, it doesn't make sense. Why? Because we serve a loving God. We serve a God who wants to be interactive in our lives. Not just my life because I was born in a certain time period that happened to fall in that category. No, see, all people. 
He wants a relationship with every last one of us. He wants to work interactively with each of us. He uses miracles to prove his power. He uses miracles to encourage us, to draw us in in relationship. So, see, this logical argument didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense. Why? Because I saw it differently even in my own life. And we're not going to get any further in this today. We'll do the others next week, these other logical arguments. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because I think as, as you start to see what these arguments were, you're going to have the same reaction that I did. Really? This seems a little ridiculous. How did I miss this? How did I believe this? And the only thing I could come up with for myself was control. It was an easy way for me to control my relationship with Jesus Christ. See, because remember, Jesus Christ is a man. He's the Son of God, 100% God, came down to earth, became 100% man. But reading the word of God, when he rose from the grave and he ascended, he ascended with a glorified body. The same glorified human body that we will have. Okay? He sits at the right hand of the Father right now. So my relationship with him has to be through his spirit. See, I can't go up to the third heaven and just hang out with Jesus Christ. It'd be really cool if I could. But I can have a relationship with Jesus Christ through His Spirit. Why? Because first of all, His Spirit's in me. His Spirit, as we went over last week in John, John chapter 20, when the, after He had risen from the grave, before He went to heaven, Jesus breathed on the apostles. He breathed into them the Holy Spirit. Okay, that was not the filling of the Holy Spirit. That was their salvation. That was their justification of sin. Why? Because when Jesus was alive, they were still under the law. Just as Jesus was under the law. That's what he came to fulfill when he died and he rose again. So now that he had risen, he blew into them the Holy Spirit. That was their justification for their sin. They were covered because they believed in Jesus Christ and believed who he was. They were covered by his blood. But then if you read in Acts chapter 1, they were to wait in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended. They were to wait in Jerusalem until what? The Holy Spirit. Well, wait a second. thought he was already in me. thought I already knew him. No. He was given as a guarantee. He was given as a, a stamp of approval. That when we go... At the end of our lives, we breathe our last breath and we're standing before Jesus Christ. We are covered because of his atonement for our sin. That's what that Holy Spirit was first given as. The second time was when they went to wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit. That was the relationship. Do you understand? You cannot build your relationship. And this is what hit me the hardest. Here, I've been building this relationship for 40 years. And what hit me the hardest is I cannot build this relationship without interaction. 
I can't build this relationship without the Holy Spirit working in my life, interacting with me. There were only certain levels I could go to in intimacy with Him. And most of those levels had to do with knowledge. My intimacy with Jesus Christ was the knowledge that I knew of Him in the Word of God. And I'm not saying that's bad. Because again, God worked in my life for 40 years. And it was good. And there was fruit in my life. But there was a level of intimacy that I didn't even realize I was missing. It wasn't about being able to do cool things. It wasn't about God doing a miracle in my life, healing somebody or or prophesying something, and, oh, that is really cool. So I feel closer to God. It wasn't that at all. For me, it was the understanding that the Holy Spirit would choose to work through me where I had no more control. See, as we get in over the next few weeks into these manifestational gifts of the Spirit, out of 1 Corinthians 12, you're going to understand that every one of those has nothing to do with us, except that we receive it. We let Him do it. We don't perform anything. We don't do anything of our own accord. We just simply say, Yes, Lord. Use me. Why? Because I want to be intimate with you. Because I want to know you deeper than I did yesterday. I want to be used by you because the benefit of that is my relationship with you. You want to be sold out for Jesus Christ, you have to have intimacy. And intimacy goes so much deeper than knowledge. You can know the entire Word of God. You can have the entire Word of God memorized to where you have the answers like that. You know, this problem, here's the answer. This problem, oh, here's the answer. But you know as well as I do, if you don't apply that, it means nothing. Any parent in here understands that in training up their child. The application is what's the important part. The application is the intimacy. The application is letting the Lord work through you and you releasing your own control. So this is what the this is the journey that I had been on for that 2-year period and we're going to continue this next week going through these a total of nine things I found. So we have, we have six more of these logical arguments. And I want to hit these because I'm guessing perhaps some of you are where I was. But see, God wants something different. God wants to work in this church. He wants to work in your lives where you release the control. Where you trust Him in your relationship to take you to a new level of intimacy with Him. Not just in knowledge, but in application. Let's bow our heads.